If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. In the Soviet Union, under Stalin, there was such an atmosphere of fear and intimidation that if Stalin gave an order not to enter his quarters, they wouldn't do it. So in spite of the very heavy security precautions that surrounded the dacha, the fences, the padlocks, the German shepherds, the hundreds of armed guards, none of that could protect him from his own collapse. That was Joshua Rubenstein discussing the events surrounding the death of Joseph Stalin. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Last Thursday, the 20th of October, saw the release of the period comedy drama The Death of Stalin. Directed by Armando Iannucci and starring Steve Buscemi, Simon Russell Beale, Michael Palin and others, it revisits the momentous events of the spring of 1953 as Soviet leaders tried to deal with the demise of Joseph Stalin. The same topic was explored in less comedic form by the American historian Joshua Rubinstein in his 2016 book the last days of Stalin. And so to mark the release of the film, we caught up with Joshua to explore the dramatic end of the Soviet leader's quarter century of murderous dictatorial rule. Joshua was interviewed by our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. In your book, you explore um, the last days of Joseph Stalin's life and then the uncertainty that came to the Soviet Union in the days following his death. How did he die? Yes. Well, Joseph Stalin, in actuality, was 74 years old in March of 1953. We know for certain that he had been suffering from high blood pressure. And in those days, there was no really effective medical treatment in the West or, of course, in the Soviet Union for high blood pressure. There were no none of the medications that we are used to now. Plus, he was not taking his doctor's advice for rest He actually had arrested a number of the doctors who had been treating him and members of the inner circle as part of this notorious doctor's plot that had been announced in January of 1953. This also compromised his health care. What we know is that on the night of February 28th, leading into March 1st, the Sunday, uh, Stalin had entertained members of his inner circle in the usual way. They had watched a movie at the Kremlin and then driven out to his dacha about 10 miles outside of town for a late night dinner beginning at midnight. He had let them go home around 4.30 or 5 in the morning, then retired to bed, which was a usual time for him. He was a very nocturnal figure. He did not summon uh, the newspapers or tea or breakfast at 12 noon, which was his usual habit. 
But by two or three or four o'clock in the afternoon, the guards became very nervous, very anxious. But they did not know what to do. The rules of the dacha were that no one was to enter Stalin's private quarters, his private rooms, without being summoned. This was part of his security uh, scheme. So the guards just waited for a signal, uh, some kind of bell to be rung. They heard nothing. They didn't hear someone shuffling their feet or coughing or sneezing or anything to alarm them, but the silence itself was alarming. So at 10 o'clock that night, at least according to one story we have, they asked an elderly woman housekeeper who worked for many years at the dacha to enter Stalin's private quarters to see what was going on. They figured that if Stalin was conscious and okay, he would be the least alarmed to see her. He wouldn't grab a gun and shoot her. Well, she found him on the floor. He'd obviously collapsed. He was lying in his own urine. He was only semi-conscious. So she raised the alarm. The guards came in. They lifted him onto a sofa. They understood something had happened. They called members of the Politburo. They did not call doctors. In a couple of hours, members of the Politburo arrived, uh, uh, Leverenti Beria, the security chief, and others. And they said, look, Stalin's sleeping. He's snoring. Why did you bother us? Why are you worrying? And they left. They did not call medical for medical help. So it wasn't until earlier that later that morning, like six or seven in the morning, that the guards again raised the alarm. And then doctors were summoned. They quickly confirmed that Stalin had had a devastating stroke and he died a few days later. Perhaps you could talk a bit about the fear that led to the Politburo and the guards being so unwilling to call for medical help to step out of line in any way. Sure. Well, that's the point, as you just said, they would not step out of line. They had to follow his instructions. The idea that they could act spontaneously in a human way, they understood something was wrong. And in a normal society, they would have gone in the door, knocked on the door heavily, done something to get his attention and uh, to, to be on the lookout for his health, his well-being. But in the Soviet Union, under Stalin, there was such an atmosphere of fear and intimidation that if Stalin gave an order not to enter his quarters, they wouldn't do it. So in spite of the very heavy security precautions that surrounded the dacha, the fences, the padlocks, the German shepherds, the armed, hundreds of armed guards, none of that could protect him from his own collapse, from collapsing in his own urine and not being able even to scream. So the fear that enveloped him made him more vulnerable. It did not protect him in the end. And I think that's one of the ironies about his, his demise, his collapse. Secondly, it needs to be pointed out that, okay, they understood he got sick sometime on March 2nd, early hours of March 2nd, that Monday. They did not alert the population in the world to Stalin's collapse for two more days. They wanted those days to discuss among themselves how to divide up government and party responsibilities in order to ensure some kind of continuity and reassure the population when the time came to say that Stalin is very ill. Of course, they would never have made such an announcement unless they were certain that he was about to die. And so as well as concern for their leader's health, there was, you just mentioned, this kind of scramble for power. And perhaps you could introduce us to a few of the individuals in the Politburo who who were these people who were hoping to succeed Stalin. Sure. Well, 
They all were succeeding Stalin. That's the point. They decided to make some kind of collective arrangement, a collective leadership. But the leading figures at that moment uh, were Lavrenti Beria, who is a longtime security chief, originally from the Soviet Republic of Georgia. He had been brought to Moscow in 1938. He had a notorious reputation for personal brutality, but he was also a very capable administrator. He had been administering the Soviet program to develop both the hydrogen, the atomic bomb, which they had set off in 1949, and now a hydrogen bomb, which they would set off in August of 1953, following Stalin's death. So there's Beria. And then there's Vyacheslav Molotov, the longtime uh, foreign secretary. Um, well, in America, we call him Secretary of State, the foreign minister. He had been very famous for working so closely with Stalin for negotiating the pact with Hitler in the summer of 1939, leading to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. He was kind of a senior statesman. No one felt that he would vie for absolute power. Uh, he didn't project that kind of image, but he was very much part of the inner circle when Stalin became ill. Now, Nikita Khrushchev is a very important figure, but what's curious is that he was very little known. He had been uh, uh, brought by Stalin to Moscow in the 1930s. He was seen as a junior member of the leadership, but he played an increasingly important role, um, both as head of the Ukraine party organization and as head of the organization in Moscow for a time. So he was close to Stalin, but he was so little known in the West that when Eisenhower took office and, and got word of Stalin's collapse and they were figuring out who are the people around Stalin. President Eisenhower referred to Nikita Khrushchev as that little-known Khrushchev. So there's Khrushchev. And then, of course, there's Georgi Malenkov, who is a party bureaucrat, who is reputed to be number two in the inner circle. And the, the assumption was that Malenkov would indeed succeed Stalin. So these are the four most important uh, remaining members of the leadership who took control of the country and, and set, um, set their sights on how to divide up responsibilities before they told the population about Stalin's illness. So not only was the, the, the new leadership planning on how to uh, arrange a transition, but then they began planning the funeral, uh, even though, of course, Stalin wasn't, didn't die until uh, 9.50 at night on March 5th. It took several more hours before an announcement was made publicly by Moscow Radio that Stalin had died. The body was quickly prepared uh, for viewing. And uh, on March 6th in the afternoon, there began to be public viewing in the House of Unions. That lasted for more or less three days. And tens of thousands of people were able to view the body and hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets of Moscow much like during Lenin's funeral in January of 1924. It was very cold. There were these incidents of people being trampled to death. And then there was the funeral in Red Square on March 9th, and similar enormous gatherings in the capitals of Eastern Europe, in Bucharest and Prague, gatherings of hundreds of thousands of people were coerced, of course, into honoring uh, Stalin at the moment of his funeral and internment in Moscow. One of the curious things I found was that there was, of course, a delegation of Chinese communist leaders. Mao did not come to Moscow, but Zhou Enlai led the, de the delegation of 18. 
Zhou Enlai was never asked to be with foreign diplomats. He was the only foreigner placed with the Soviet leaders. Um, so they were giving him special status. Even when they walked the, the caisson, the casket, through the streets of Moscow from the House of Unions to uh, the Red Square, the place of the funeral itself. If we can look a little then at the reaction back in the Soviet Union, um, you write that the reaction to Stalin's death among the population were as varied as the people themselves. But uh, in a general sense, what was the um, reaction? Well, there could be no public celebrations. Uh, here and there, people expressed their satisfaction over Stalin's death. They were mostly uh, some young people, many drunks. And these were these incidents were reported to the police and people were arrested uh, for making statements in front of others uh, in favor of the fact that Stalin had died, expressing satisfaction. I would say the most overwhelming feelings were uncertainty and grief, that Stalin was such uh, a, a figure he had been so internalized uh, by the Soviet people, even among those who understood it was a terrible dictatorship and were waiting for him to leave the scene, they still felt unmoored. Uh, a figure like Andrei Sakharov, the famous dissident, uh, later admitted that he was in tears when he read about Stalin, when he learned about Stalin's death. There was also a great deal of fear that there would be panic, that things would get worse, that Stalin was seen as a stabilizing figure in spite of his reign of terror, and people were simply afraid that there'd be disorder, and the regime was afraid of disorder. After all, from the time his body lay in state on March 6th until the funeral on March 9th, we believe hundreds of people died uh, because there were large, enormous lines of people through the streets of Moscow to view the body in the House of Unions near Red Square, and people were trampled to death, not because of anything malicious by the regime, but the regime lost control of the crowds. It just didn't mobilize properly, uh, didn't organize uh, things well enough. And so Khrushchev later admitted that over 100 people died, were trampled to death in Moscow. We believe the figure is higher, and there were casualties in Leningrad and in Tbilisi as well. So there was a feeling by the new leadership they had to assert control they had to reassure the population that there was continuity. And at the same time, they began making gestures to reassure the population that things would get better. If we can just go back um, to your very first answer in which you mentioned the doctor's plot. You explore um, this episode in your book and wider policies of Stalin as an indication that Stalin may have been preparing um, in the final months of his life for a, another purge. There are many open questions that still remain about what Stalin's plans were from the summer of 1952 until his death in March of 1953. We know from the memoirs of other members of the leadership, uh, like Anastas Mikoyan, who had a long uh, career in running foreign trade for the Soviet Union, he was also a member of the leadership, Several members like Mikoyan, even Molotov, had been sidelined. They were not being called to all the meetings of the leadership. Stalin was making very hostile remarks about them to other members. And in the fall of 1952, he very, on his own initiative, enlarged the size of what had been called the Politburo from a nine or 10 man uh, group 
to a group of 25, and he then folded into the leadership many younger men, and they were all men, who had little uh, reputation in the country. No one outside of the party, uh, inner circles of the party, knew who these people were. Uh, so they had they didn't resonate with the public. But Mikoyan and others understood that Stalin was diluting the power of the leadership and perhaps making it easier to arrest them. Secondly, Mikoyan feared that Stalin would not only purge them, but that he was planning something along the lines of what he'd done in the 1930s, when he'd gone after men like Zinoviev and Kamenev, who had been close to Lenin, and Stalin um, executed them in order to make clear that he would be the sole decider and the holder of power in the country. It was an expression of his dictatorial, uh, tyrannical methods. So there is a fear that he would engineer some kind of purge on that scale. Secondly, uh, from even during World War II, when the Red Army was defeating the Nazis and liberating the concentration camps like Majdanek and Auschwitz and rescuing Jews, the Soviet Union was both quietly and sometimes more overtly pursuing an anti-Semitic purge of its own against its own Soviet Jewish citizens. Uh, Jewish men, Jewish women who had attained certain prominent positions in the arts, in industry, even within the party. Sometimes this was done in a quiet way, and sometimes, like in the anti-cosmopolitan campaign in 1949, in a more overt way. So in the late uh, months of 1952, Stalin began arresting doctors who were treating members of the Politburo, even himself and his family. And then in January, on January 13th, 1953, a startling announcement was made that a plot had been uncovered, a conspiracy to compromise the health of Soviet leaders, even murder them, by a group of doctors, most of whom were identified as Jews, who were said to be in league with uh, Western imperialism, meaning the Americans, and Zionist forces. So this was a very explicit anti-Semitic charge, first directed at doctors and then indirectly against Soviet Jews themselves. This led to panic in the hospitals and in the clinics. People began to suspect they're Jewish doctors. They wouldn't trust them. They wouldn't take their medications. Um, and this led to a tremendous atmosphere of fear and suspicion in January, February 1953, even to rumors that the goal, the ultimate goal of the doctor's plot was not just to execute the offending doctors publicly in Red Square, but then to use this as an occasion to um, exile thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the European cities of the Soviet Union. That would mean Moscow, Leningrad, Riga, uh, Vilnius, Kharkov, and Kiev in Ukraine where there were large Jewish populations that had survived the Holocaust and repopulated those urban centers. Um, this was a widely held belief among Soviet Jews and others. But then Stalin died on March 5th. And on April 4th, publicly, a month after his death, the leadership, the new leadership publicly disavowed the doctor's plot, announced the release of the offending doctors who were still in jail, and then said publicly that doctors had been tortured, that the whole thing was a fabrication, and they blamed it on some now arrested leading figures in the security services. 
Of course, what they couldn't say was that if the doctors were innocent, Stalin himself was guilty. And he was guilty of a crime far worse than what the doctors had been accused of doing. But that was not something they could explicitly say publicly. In what other ways did they try and distance themselves from his regime without explicitly condemning him as a leader? It's. I think it's fair to say that from the moment of Stalin's collapse, the period of de-Stalinization immediately began. Uh, within weeks of his death, uh, Soviet leaders signaled to the Chinese and the Koreans that they wanted to negotiate an end to the fighting in the Korean War. And this led to renewed negotiations in Panmunjom and the armistice that was signed in July of 1953. That's the armistice that still governs the peninsula today. Is the situation perfect today? Of course not. We read about tensions all the time, but there's no active fighting. And that was a result of a Soviet initiative to bring that conflict to an end. Stalin wanted to see that conflict continue over the objections of the Chinese and the North Koreans because he saw it as a way of draining resources uh, from the West, particularly the United States. And they understood the need to end the conflict, and they did it. Secondly, by the end of March, they began releasing over a million prisoners from the Gulag. These were not political prisoners. These were mostly, crim these were entire, in fact, all criminals who were released very precipitously, which caused a, a, a step up in crime in Soviet cities and upset many people. So there was certainly an underside to this amnesty. But nonetheless, they saw the need to diminish the size of the gulag. They understood it was a waste. They weren't doing this on humanitarian grounds. These men did not think of things in, in ordinary categories of good and evil. It was a strictly pragmatic decision that the gulag was a waste, a drain of resources, the slave labor system, and they began to dismantle it. They also acknowledged that the population had, had needs of its own, they were going to begin addressing housing needs and the need for more consumer products. Uh, and they were making clear when they announced the release of the doctors in April and the disavowal of the plot, that they were also disavowing Stalin's use of terror on the population. Now, that didn't mean that the Soviet Union turned into, uh, as I like to say, into the Bahamas into an ordinary Western democracy? Of course not. It remained a dictatorship led by the party. But it was no longer going to be based on outright terror and mass murder, which Stalin had engaged in multiple times. And that's what the, the leadership was making clear to the public. And something you explore in your book is how this um, relaxation of this reign of terror and this reform took Eisenhower's administration by surprise. He came to the presidency in November 1952 and was prepared to deal with Stalin, but was very unprepared for Stalin's death. Well, this is a very important uh, point that many historians have written about and explored. Eisenhower was elected in November of 1952. He was the first Republican president in 20 years. Roosevelt had been elected four times. He died in office in April of 45, succeeded by Harry Truman, who was elected in his own right in 1948. Then Truman decided not to run for re-election, which he was entitled to do. And uh, General Eisenhower was elected president. He took office in January. He ran on a platform of disavowing uh, Roosevelt's and Truman's attitude of containment of the Soviet Union a policy developed by George Kennan, a longtime distinguished American diplomat, and that 
Eisenhower and his foreign policy team, led by John Foster Dulles, who became Secretary of State, they were going to try to roll back communism. That was their slogan, not just contain it, but roll it back from where it dominated countries, particularly in Eastern Europe and now China. So when, when Eisenhower was inaugurated, and even the weeks before the inauguration, Winston Churchill, who was again prime minister in England, encouraged Eisenhower to reach out to Stalin. Eisenhower had met Stalin in the summer of 1945 in Moscow, and of course, as the leading American uh, military figure in the Western Allies, he'd gone to Moscow and met Zhukov and others, and he was on the reviewing stand in, in Red Square standing next to Stalin. So he encouraged Eisenhower to think of a way to reach out to Stalin and try to resolve the issues that plague the West and the East over the division of Europe, the division of Germany, the arms race, the arms race now involving not just conventional weapons, but nuclear, atomic and nuclear weapons. Eisenhower was very wary of summits, and the Americans in general were very wary of summits. They felt that uh, Roosevelt and Truman had been outplayed by the Soviets uh, at, in Yalta in January 45, then in Potsdam in the summer of 45. And so they were very wary of meeting Soviet leaders. And Eisenhower felt that way. But Churchill kept pushing him. And then suddenly Stalin died. And Eisenhower, I, personally, Eisenhower understood this was a unique moment. And he pressed his colleagues, his senior advisors, for advice on what to do, how to meet the new Soviet leaders, what to offer them. And there's a very famous uh, quote, quotation I found uh, that said that Eisenhower, on March 4th, when they first learned about Stalin's collapse and they knew that he would die imminently, Eisenhower said, look, we looked at our files. What are our contingency plans if Stalin were to leave the scene? And they found nothing. And Eisenhower said, this is simply criminal. That's how it was reported by one of his advisors. So... Churchill again took up the call for Eisenhower to reach out to the new Kremlin leaders. Eisenhower understood that there was new leadership in the West, new leadership in the East. It's time to turn the page. But John Foster Dulles was absolutely adamant against any kind of gesture, any kind of negotiations. And Eisenhower couldn't overcome either Foster Dulles's outright opposition and perhaps his own reluctance. So that throughout the spring, in spite of the many domestic gestures of the new Kremlin leaders and foreign gestures over Korea and other gestures they made to release prisoners in Korea, foreigners who've been captured, uh, concessions over conditions in Berlin, which was divided among the four powers. There was no wall there yet. And many thousands of refugees were leaving East Berlin for West Berlin. It was an open city. Um, Eisenhower still reluctant, was reluctant to actually meet with the Soviet leadership. Uh, and I do believe this was a missed opportunity, and many American diplomats at the time later expressed regret that they didn't push Eisenhower to make more of a concerted effort to meet with the new Soviet leaders. There's a new film arriving in cinemas uh, shortly, um, The Death of Stalin, which portrays the uh, manoeuvrings and shoulder bargings of his inner circle in, in the days following his death as, as a farce. Um, would you be able to talk a bit about how these manoeuvrings actually played out? Sure. Well, let me say a word or two about the movie. I've not seen it. I've seen a trailer and it's completely over the top. It is based on a French satirical graphic novel 
that came out a few years ago. It's now been translated into English. I've, I was not able to get the French volume, but I've seen and read the English volume. It has very little to do with reality, but it's very funny. And, I, and the movie's gotten tremendous reviews initially, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing it and, and enjoying it. But in fact, this was not a farce. This was a very serious set of maneuvering. It was very clear to people uh, in the inner circle and around the inner circle uh, that the two people who would vie for power were the well-known Lavrenti Beria, the security chief, and the little-known Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev immediately, while Stalin was still alive, though unconscious, began mentioning to others uh, that if we don't do away with Beria, he'll do away with us. That he made clear that he feared Beria and that they had to, for their own sake, very slowly, very discreetly begin uh, working together. And at some point when the moment was right to uh, arrest Beria, marginalize him. And in the end, of course, he was executed. This took Khrushchev many months of maneuvering very quietly. Keep in mind, Beria was the head of both internal and external security. He had a, he had a small army of border guards. He controlled communications among the leadership. It was his guards who were in control of the Kremlin. So Khrushchev had to reach out to military leaders in order to um, conspire against Beria effectively. They had to smuggle weapons into the Kremlin. And at the moment of Beria's arrest in June of 1953, just months after Stalin's death, they had to rely on military officers, armed military officers in the Kremlin under the very eyes of Beria's own men to take him into custody, hold him in a secret location, and then smuggle him out of the Kremlin uh, on the floor of the backseat of a vehicle. So this was a very carefully thought out, extremely discreet, secretive operation to take physical control of Beria. This was not a farce. This was dead serious. And again, while I'm not going to say that Khrushchev uh, was a democratic figure, he wasn't Thomas Jefferson. Um, he certainly was a benign alternative to, Lavr to Lavrenti Beria. And in the end, Berry was arrested, taken to a secret location, uh, an underground bunker that even he did not know about, uh, alongside the Moscow River, brought to trial in December, and then quickly executed, along with six other uh, uh, close associates of him from, from the what we now call the KGB. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy the movie, but uh, I think we should keep in mind that uh, these were very serious men who had carried out many grave mass crimes of their own. But to make fun of them so many decades later, it might well be the suitable thing to do as long as we don't forget who they really were. You know, there's a photograph in my book from 1947 of leaders of the Politburo sitting with Stalin. And there are two men in that picture, Nikolai Voznesensky and, um, and uh, a man named Kuznetsov. So they were members of the inner circle in 1947. Two years later, Stalin had them arrested and executed. And my point when I show this picture and I speak about the, this incident is to make very clear, until the end of his life, Stalin retained the right to kill. And he could do that on a whim. So the men around him were not only his closest collaborators, his lieutenants, 
They all understood they could be his victims at any moment. So they breathed a sigh of relief when they understood that Stalin had collapsed. They may have mourned him in some personal way, but they also breathed a sigh of relief, as did the population when it came to realize what was over. That was Joshua Rubenstein. The Last Days of Stalin is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Yale University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, the film The Death of Stalin is in cinemas now. Well, that's all for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be speaking to Mary Hollingsworth about the Medici. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.